we begin our time in God's Word today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thanking you for the blessings that we have already enjoyed, for the ways that you work through song and through prayer, through the reading of your Word, to reprove us and correct us, to teach us, to build us up. Lord, I pray that as we study from your Word this morning, as we read uh, the Word of God, and as we hear it proclaimed, that we would be changed, that we would glorify you in the way that we live, in the way that we uh, seek to witness to your great purpose and plan for this world. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11 this morning as we come to the end of a section of Romans in which Paul is seeking to answer a very difficult question. And as I explained at the beginning of this set of three chapters from chapter 9 through chapter 11, this is a question that doesn't, for at least for me, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but at least for me, I think for most Christians in America, it doesn't really hit us as that big of a problem. But if you are a Jewish Christian or if you are a Christian that is focused on God's purpose and plan for Israel, then this is a big question. And that is, if we can hope in, pro- in the promises of God, if we can hope as we face suffering in this world, knowing that God keeps his promises and will do what he has said, how can we have that hope if it seems as though God has not been faithful to his promises to Israel? It seems as though, at least in Paul's day, but especially in our day, also in our day, as though God has not kept his promises to Israel because on the whole, in a large measure, the nation of Israel or the race of the Jews have not come to faith in Christ. And because they are God's chosen people, they are the people to whom God made the promises They have the law, they have the sacrifices, they have all of those things. It seems as though God has rejected them. He hasn't kept his promises to them. So Paul started back in chapter 9 to answer that question. And he started by explaining that just because you are descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are a child of the promise. As he said in chapter 9, they are not all Israel who are of Israel, but rather it is those who have the faith of Abraham who are considered to be the children of the promise. And then in chapter 10, he showed that Israel's rejection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, meant that the gospel has gone forth into all the world. And because God doesn't save people based on their lineage or their race or their background, But based on faith alone, it means that anyone can be saved. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who your mama and daddy were. It doesn't matter what your standing is in this world. That salvation is strictly by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you through his cross and his resurrection. God, as Paul says, shows no partiality. He doesn't have one means of salvation for one race of people or one background of people and a totally different means of salvation for another race or another background. He has no distinction based on who you are or where you come from. 
So now we come to the final, Paul's final thoughts on this question. And in Romans chapter 11, Paul gives a direct and a clear answer to the question of God's faithfulness to Israel. So we need to, as we have done in the past couple of weeks, we need to read this whole chapter. Now, more than any other chapter that we've done this with, chapter 11 has a lot of stuff in it. It's a long chapter. It has a lot of things I'm not going to be able to get to today. So this would be a great, if you have a question that comes up as we read through this, write it down and we'll do it at the next Stump the Pastor event. You can ask that question then. But uh, I want to focus on the main points of this passage, but we're going to read it all because it's God's Word and it's beneficial to us even if I don't preach every single word of this passage. So let's read Romans chapter 11 together as we get into this text today. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, God's Word says, I ask then, has God rejected His people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written... God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the, lump, is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches." But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were cut off 
uh, were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the, nat the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by, by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in this passage, we're going to focus on three primary points that I want you to see today. The first is the graceful remnant. The second is the grafted nations. And the last is the greatness of God's plan. <clears throat> so first, let's consider the graceful remnant from verses 1 through 10. So here we find that Paul asks and answers the question that we've all been wondering. Okay, so God has distinguished between those who are of Israel and those who are descendants of Israel. He has, extend, he has extended the gospel into the world and shows no partiality. I get all that. But the question is, has God rejected his people? Has he rejected the people that have all these stories that make up the majority of the Bible? Has God done all that? He, brought, he chose Abraham, he brought uh, them into Egypt, and then he brought them out of, the Egypt, out of Egypt by his mighty hand, and he led them into the land of Canaan, and he defeated all these nations in front of them. 
And he gave them a rich and beautiful land. And he kept calling them back to himself even when they would reject him. And he was with them in the exile and he brought them back to the land. He did all of that. And then he's like, you know what? Never mind. I'm done with y'all. Has God rejected his people whom he chose? And Paul's answer to that is simple. And then he expounds on that simple answer. He starts by answering that question by just saying, absolutely not. God has not rejected his people. And to show that, he gives two examples. First of all, he gives the example of himself. He says, consider me. I was a, a Jew of the Jews. I was a, born of Abraham. I was born to the uh, tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the most wealthy and, and influential tribes. I was a zealous persecutor of the church until God, by His grace, shone a light into the soul of, uh, of Paul in the midst of his rebellion and in his spiritual blindness. And Jesus Christ struck him blind so that he could see the truth of the gospel. The second example that he gives is from the Old Testament. And I encourage you, if you have time this afternoon in your Lord's Day reading, to go back and read 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. It's a great story, really great story of God's work in the land of Israel. And remember the story of the prophet Elijah, who puts forward this contest for the, uh, for the prophets of Baal. He sets up this altar and he put, uh, sacrifices a bull and he says, let's have a contest. Whomever, whichever God can rain down fire and consume this bull, that's the God that Israel should serve. And so the prophets of Baal, they, uh, they began to make a bunch of racket and they start uh, beating cymbals and uh, trying to wake up their God. And one of the things that I've recently learned is the reason they do that is because the stories of Baal, in the stories of Baal, he's actually kind of an alcoholic and he tends to sleep most of the day. And so they believed that if they made enough racket and they cut themselves, then surely Baal would pay enough attention. He would come out of his stupor and he would pay enough attention to do what they were asking him to do. So they spend all day doing this stuff and bleeding themselves and, and banging on cymbals and pots and Baal never rains down fire. And then Elijah says, all right, it's my turn. So he invites, he asks the servants to bring water and to pour it over the bull and over the pyre and over the uh, altar. And they fill up trenches. They pour so much water that it fills up all these trenches around the, uh, the altar. And then Elijah just simply kneels down in prayer and he praises God and he asks him to answer his prayer. And what happens? Fire descends from heaven and consumes the bull, the pyre, and the altar itself. It consumes everything and it dries up the water in the trenches. At that, Elijah calls on Israel to worship God. And the first act that they can carry out is to slay the prophets of, ba uh, prophets of Baal. So the uh, people at that, that event, they go out and they kill these heretics. And uh, everything seems to be turning Elijah's way. It seems to be going good in Israel all of a sudden. 
until Queen Jezebel puts a bounty on Elijah's head. So Elijah turns and runs and he ends up in a cave. And God comes to him in this cave and he asks why he's hiding. And Elijah gives the answer that, that Paul quotes in the passage that we just read. He says, basically, God, I'm the only faithful Israelite left. I'm the only one you got. They kill your prophets. They defile your altars. They, they uh, don't obey you. And I'm the only one left. God lets Elijah get through with his whining. And then he rebukes him and he reveals that he, the whole time that Elijah has been serving God, God has had 7,000 men who have never bowed the knee to, to Baal. They have never worshipped any other God but Yahweh. All along, this whole time, God had had a remnant. He didn't need Elijah's help. And God wasn't scared off by Jezebel or by the prophets of Baal. He wasn't intimidated. God was going to accomplish His purposes in Israel, and He was going to keep His promises through that remnant. You see, the purposes of God have always been to magnify His grace. God loves to turn our natural way of thinking on its head. So he hardens the heart of those who are powerful. He makes foolish the knowledge of those who think they are wise. He confuses the plans of the boastful. But he gives the kingdom of God to those who are poor and oppressed. He comforts those who mourn. And the meek are those who inherit the earth. He doesn't act based on our worthiness or our reputation or our genealogy or our family heritage, but based on his mercy and his grace alone. So next, let's consider the grafted nations from verses 11 through 24. Now, Paul told us in verses 1 through 10 that God has saved a remnant by grace, but the rest of Israel has been blinded so that they cannot see the gospel. Now that raises an obvious question. Why is God, in large measure, keeping the Jews in darkness? So Paul answers that question in verse 11 by saying, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So another aspect of this plan of God is that God has always had a plan, even when it was just Abraham, even when the nation of Israel was in its infancy, even when the nation of Israel seemed to be setting war against every other nation, God has always had a plan of grace to redeem this entire world for himself. In fact, you could picture this plan as a tree, which is what Paul does in verse 16 when he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And he begins to use this analogy of an olive tree where God is taking 
from he has this he has this stump or this root of an olive tree and he takes uh, pieces from a wild olive branch, which are Gentile people. They're people from outside of the nation of Israel and he grafts them into that root of that olive tree. And so what is pictured here is a plan of grace that is like a tree that is growing up from the root and it's growing out into all the world. And the root of God's plan of grace reaches all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Y'all remember the story of the fall of Adam and Eve when God comes to them and He asks, why they are hiding and they say that they were knew that they were naked and God asked what they have done and they admit it but they don't really admit it they shift the blame and so Adam says it was that woman you gave to me that made me sin and the woman says well it was the serpent that you created that made me sin and so God begins to pronounce curses and he starts with a curse on the serpent. And we all know the, the curse about the snake, right? That he crawls on the ground, that he eats dirt all the days of his life. But then he gets into this spiritual curse against the, the power behind the serpent. And he says in chapter 3, verse, six, uh, verse 15 of Genesis, he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, a lot of times we read that, as they say, anachronistically. We think, well, that explains why women are scared to death of snakes. And that's not the point of that passage at all. What that passage is saying is prophesying about a man who will come, who is born of a woman, who will crush the rule of Satan. He will defeat Satan. Satan will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. The root grows into branches from that promise of God. And through Seth, we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26, that in the day of Seth's son, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And it branches out into other peoples. And we find this in the story of Genesis 4 and 5. We find the, the seed of the woman as, as these people that are under God's grace are extending out. And the seed of Cain, the seed of the serpent that are extending out as well. And all of that seems to sort of come to a head. And at times, this, this tree doesn't look like it's going to grow at all. So... Like it doesn't seem like it was going to grow at all in the flood. That even the sons of God are turning away from God and, and following after uh, evil things. And so God judges the world in a flood. But even then, even in that, God extends His grace to Noah. That tree also seemed hopeless when the nations gather together on the plain of Shinar and they build a tower to themselves and for themselves. But even as God scattered the nations and he gave them over to their own idolatry, he calls one man named Abraham. And he promises to Abraham that even though the world is scattered and it's set against God, he would bless Abraham and he would make him into a great nation. And then he also promises to Abraham that through him, he would bring blessings to the world. 
And so through fits and starts, the tree of God's grace, it kept growing through Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. And even though great nations like Egypt would try to prevent it, it would still grow. And even when pagan nations would resist them, it would still grow. And even when the nation of Israel itself was split into two and the people turned to other gods, God, uh, the, still the tree of God's grace would continue to grow. And branches would be cut off as the northern ten tribes of Israel would be taken into captivity in Assyria. And even the, the great city of Jerusalem would be conquered by, by the Babylonians. Israel would be traded like livestock from Babylon to Persia to Greece and then ultimately to Roman rule. And anyone who looked at this tree of God's grace might wonder, you know, God, you're not a very good gardener. What are you doing here? This tree is barely living. What are you doing? What are you thinking? But then... A little baby is born in the city of Bethlehem, which is the city of David. And he would be born to descendants of David. And in this little baby named Jesus was the promise of grace. Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot... From the stump of Jesse, and Jesse was David's father, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Further down in that same chapter, in verse, 11, in verse 10, Isaiah promises, In that day the root of Jesse will, uh, will stand as a signal to the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. So when his parents bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, the old man Simeon sees him and knows exactly who he is. And he proclaims, My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Yet, Jesus was rejected by his own people. But he was rejected by his own people for the very plan of God's grace. Through Israel's rejection, Jesus was crucified and sacrificed for the sins of the world. Through Israel's rejection, the church was scattered out into the world, taking the gospel with them. So Paul says, now is the age of the Gentiles. Now is the age when God is fulfilling His promise that He made way back to Abraham that He would bless the world through a descendant of Abraham. And God has done that through Jesus Christ as the gospel has gone out into all the world. People from every tribe and every language and every race are being grafted into this great tree of God's grace. And yet, there's continued hope for Israel. Which brings me to my final point. The greatness of God's grace. In verses 25 through 36, Paul turns back to the question of Israel's final salvation. And he makes this prophetic statement. 
where he says, A partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. So we're living in the age of the Gentiles when God is extending this great tree of grace throughout all the world. And he has a plan. There is a number. There is a way. There is a, a, a completion to this plan of reaching the Gentiles with the gospel. When it is, Paul promises that Israel will be saved. Now some hold that this means that God will save the people of Israel by some other means other than the gospel. In other words, there, was, there is one way of salvation for the Jews and one way of salvation for the Gentiles. But Paul has always said, he's already said three different times in the last three chapters that the Jews are rejected by God because they don't believe in the gospel. Understand, there is only one way of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. There is one way of salvation for rich or for poor. There is one way of salvation for black or white, American or Chinese. There is one way of salvation, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. So what I think Paul means here is that there will be a day when God will lift the veil over the eyes of the, of the Jewish people and they will clearly see the gospel of Jesus Christ and they will turn to him in faith by the millions. So when will that be? I don't know. <laughs> don't ask me. But I do know that God's plan is right and good, even though we don't understand it all. And that's exactly what Paul ends with in this answer to this question. He ends in answering this question by reminding us of God's faithfulness and His greatness in His plan. In verses 33 through 36, Paul gives a beautiful doxology of praise. And he makes two statements that we can't miss here that I want you to notice. First, he states that God's wisdom and knowledge are far beyond anything that we could ever understand. And he quotes two different uh, passages from the Old Testament here. He says that uh, there is no one who can be God's counselor. Now, we as human beings, we love to try to give God advice. We love to look at what God is doing and say, you know, why are you doing it that way? This doesn't make any. Why did you let this happen in my life? Why aren't you doing this in that other person's life? What are you doing, God? But the point that Paul makes here is there is no one that can be God's counselor. Friend, you might think you have things figured out, but as I often pray and as I often say, you might see a few things that God is doing. As John Piper has said, you might see one or two things that God is doing in your life, but there are millions upon millions of other circumstances and conundrums that God is working out that you have never seen and wouldn't even know was happening if He did reveal it. God is working out His purposes in your life and He's working out His purposes in the world. And who are we to question Him? Amen. There is no one who can give God counsel Amen. or answer back to God. 
The second thing he says about that is that that there is no one who can obligate God so that he owes them. Notice he says that there is no one who can uh, can obligate him so that he can be repaid. In other words, your good works, your your obedience to God, it is what God expects, but it does not obligate God to pay you. And so the Jews think that they can earn God's favor by working and doing good works and fulfilling every dot and every tittle of the law. But the point that Paul is making is that doesn't make God owe you. It's just what God expects of you. You at that point, you have done the minimum of what God has expected. You have not earned anything from God. He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you salvation. He doesn't owe you the life that you have. He doesn't owe you the relationships and the grace and the mercy that you have. It is strictly by God's mercy and His grace that you enjoy the blessings of this life and the blessings of salvation. Nothing else. Second, God is the end of all things. God is the reason for everything. So in verse 36, he says, From him and through him and to him are all things. Everything comes from God. Your life, your purpose, your salvation, everything is from God. And second, everything is is empowered through God. So God sustains all things. If you're breathing right now, and I hope you're breathing, if you're breathing right now, it is because of God's sustaining power in this world. He sustains all things. He holds this world together by the power of His hand. If He chose for one microsecond you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Gone. Everything. Dismantled. Disassociated. Destroyed. And lastly, everything is made for His glory. The Jews exist for the glory of God. The Gentiles exist for the glory of God. And you exist For the glory of God. And he will have his glory. He will have his glory in this world. And he will have his glory in you. So brothers and sisters. God's grace has shone down through the ages. And it has shone, praise God, into our hearts. So that we might know our purpose and our salvation. Our right response to that is the response of Paul. Our right response to the purpose and the plan of God is praise. It is a life filled with the worship of God. Our right response is to worship Him with all that we are. So may we leave this place and do that very thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Paul 
and his writing here. Lord, we thank you that we know that your plan is perfect, even though we don't understand it, even though we can't comprehend it, we trust you in it. Lord, there may be questions that we can't answer in this life, but we know that you have the answers. And at your right time, you will reveal yourself and we will see your glory. Father, I pray until that day, we will live in faithful worship to you, that we will bring glory to you with our lives and that we will seek to honor you in all things. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.